get it. Keys. I'm constantly losing my keys. Lose the glasses. I've got, I have to have reading glasses for everything. I've got reading glasses in every single room of the house, every vehicle I own. Even the motorcycle now has reading glasses in it because I lose them everywhere. Keys constantly lose. Lose my cell phone every once in a while. I was doing a committal service the other day. Got out of the vehicle, got back in, driving back to the church and realized that I had lost my cell phone. It dropped out of the little carrier that it holds. Drove back to get it. I don't know if you remember Friday morning, but it was raining like crazy. And there it was. Not in too good a shape. <laughs> Guess what I have to get now? Another cell phone. Fortunately, my contract was up four years ago. I liked it so much, I've kept it for the last five years. How many of you lost your kids? You've gone to a park somewhere, gone to the beach, gone to an event, Sea World, Disney World, wherever... And then all of a sudden you recognize one of your children isn't with you. How many of you have said, honey, don't worry about it, we've got three more at home? <laughs> I don't know, I mean, the Bean family is here this morning. They've got 12 kids, 15 kids. None of you have ever said, honey, don't worry about her. We've got a bunch more at home. You go looking, right? I mean, I remember we went to SeaWorld, Aaron was four. And we went with another couple from our first church in Newcastle, and we all thought the typical thing, that everybody was together. And we, one of us had thought one had left the other or gone with the other, and obviously we were in different directions. And when you're in a place like SeaWorld, if you're in a little park like Alameda, it's, it scares you enough. But when you're in SeaWorld or Disney World or someplace like that, and you lose one of your children, panic sets in. You can't breathe. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where to go. You don't know who to turn to. But not a one of you have ever said, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, we got more at home. You go looking for them, right? I mean, literal panic floods your body. Some of you have left your children at church. One thought the other took them home. The other thought the other took them home. So often we have so many people that come in the band or serving other ministries, and so you drive separately, and somebody assumed that one brought the other home or took the other home, and you get home and realize no one did, and we're standing around with your children waiting for you to come home. VBS all week long will lose somebody because somebody thought somebody else picked them up. We don't actually lose your kids, by the way. I should clarify that. But you know and I know that's one of the scariest moments on the planet as a parent when your child wanders off and you don't know where they're at. You don't know how to get them. You call the police, you call friends, neighbors, whatever that may be. As a dad, when I watch some of these scenarios on television where a teenage daughter or a young child or a seven-year-old has gone or been taken, every time I see one of those articles, a girl from the University of Illinois, I was watching for days on end, praying, wondering, when's she going to come home? can't even imagine what it's like, even as a mom, and I don't mean to say that dads look at it differently. Uh, dads to lose their little girls, or a mom to lose her little girl or little boy, and as a parent, you're wondering, you send your child off to college, you want to make sure they're safe and well taken care of, and all of those things, and then all of a sudden you get that call or that report, you don't know where they're at. I'm sure some of you have been in situations where you've had a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter who've walked away from the faith. They were raised in church. They came to church faithfully and consistently. 
And somewhere along the way, for whatever reason, they turn their back on the faith. They turn their back on spiritual things. They just aren't following God. And believe it or not, sometimes it's been a, a parent who has drifted and a child stays faithful. And I've sat with kids through the years of my ministry that are in unbelievable pain and agony because a parent who used to bring them to church no longer cares and is no longer committed and doesn't attend anymore. And it's really painful to watch it in the eyes of a child. But I've sat with way too many parents down through the years who's had a son or a daughter who was raised in church, who knew spiritual things, who at one point made a decision for Jesus, came to VBS or a Sunday school class or an event, a youth event somewhere along the way, accepted Christ as Savior, seemed to stay consistent for a while, and then somewhere along the way walked away from the faith. And if you've ever been in that situation, maybe you're here this morning, you've got a brother or a sister, or maybe even a mom or a dad, who's not walking where they used to, it's unbelievably painful. James finishes with that intent in mind. Of all ways that James could have finished, if you are familiar with the difference between their writing styles, between James and the Apostle Paul, Paul almost always finished with a salutation of some kind. Love you, care about you, thanks for all you've done. He mentions people by name. He calls them out. He talks about their commitment to the church or to the faith or to him or what they've done for him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Encourage one another. He'll say all kinds of things. Remember my very first church, I got to preach once every other month as a youth pastor. And I got up after the service, and when it was all done, I said, greet one another with a holy kiss. I thought that was what Paul would have said. No one did it, because you don't know what to do. Paul had all kinds of salutations and greetings at the end of his writings. James finishes with the emotion of what I just shared a moment ago. So in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, we're going to conclude James this Sunday and next Sunday. Honestly, I'm not sure where we'll end up today, but I know by next Sunday we will have concluded a year-long study almost. We began last September in the book of James. You have sermon notes in your bulletin this morning, I believe, for the last time in this particular series. I wanted to give you some things to follow along, and again, as we break it, you'll have something to bring back with you next Sunday morning so we know how to conclude this section of Scripture, because it's absolutely critically important. There's also a note at the, at the beginning of that. I hope somewhere along the way, this series that we've spent a lot of time in from September till now, we'll finish it at the end or the beginning of July, so that's almost nine months, ten months in a section of Scripture. I hope it's been a benefit to you. I hope you've gained some knowledge or insight from the Word of God, some things that maybe God has taught you. If there are lessons that God has taught you, we don't, I don't get a lot of feedback. I don't always know whether it's landing, whether you are, are, are hearing some things from God that I haven't heard or some things that God is teaching you in a series. We'd love to know that. It helps me in planning for the future. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off this summer just to spend some time praying about the fall and what section of Scripture we're going to be in. In your sermon notes is a way to get that information to me. Maybe there's something that God has said to you. A couple of weeks ago, I very seldom ever get any feedback on a message, and obviously a few weeks ago when we did the one, what happens when God says no? I had a lot of feedback on that, a lot of information that people shared. One uh, stood out. There were a lot of great pieces of information that people shared with me about what God was teaching them, but one beautiful young gal 
said, God has taught me so much. I've asked him to take my MS away for a long period of time. And for whatever reason, at this point, he has chosen to say no. And as difficult as that is at her age to be able to walk through that, she said, I don't know, to be really honest with you, if I'd be where I am today, had God taken it away years ago because of what he is teaching me in the process now and what I'm hoping I can do for others who walk through difficult circumstances. That's an incredibly profound statement out of a 20-something going through unbelievable circumstances when it should happen when you're 80 or 90 as opposed to when your body's going through those times. If God has said something to you or has taught you something specifically that, that we could share or we could help one another, it would help me in planning for the future, I would really appreciate knowing that and there's a way for you to do that. As I said a couple of moments ago, James ends differently than the Apostle Paul. Ends very quickly with two statements. My brothers and sisters, if any of you should wander from the truth and someone would bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns the sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Although these two verses may seem disconnected, they're really not. Verses 13 to 20 is one unit of thought. James finishes by saying this, I want you to know that if anyone is suffering, I want you to pray for each other. If anybody is sick, we want to pray for you. If anybody wanders or strays or is straying, I want someone to make sure they bring them back or bring them home. James finishes this section of Scripture by showing us his concern for the sick, for the suffering, and in your sermon notes, people who are straying. My brethren, when he begins this in chapter 2, or chapter, uh, verse 19 of chapter 5, infers it's people in the church. If anyone among you infers that it's a possibility, it is likely to happen to anyone in the community of faith. Any one of us here this morning could drift at one time or the other. The sermon title, the girls always ask me, so they put something in the bulletin and on the header. The first thing that came to my mind was the sermon title, Prone to Wonder. It's from the old hymn, Prone to Wonder, Lord, I Feel It. Prone to Leave the Lord I Love. When you think about that, when you're deeply in love with Jesus, you'd say to yourself, there's no way I'd do that. All of us would be like the Apostle Peter when Jesus said, I just want you to know you're all going to take off tonight. Peter said, not me. The rest of them may fall away. The rest of them may run away. I want you to know, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll always be there. I'll be with you to the very end. There's not a one of us sitting here this morning who would say, well, it's probably me. You would all say, hey, I, I love God. I love Christ. I love what Jesus has done for me. I'm never going to waver. I'm never going to run away. I'm never going to fall back. I'm never going to drift off. But when you look at this section of Scripture, you have to remember all the way through that James is writing to the church. He is writing to believers. And he said, I want to be really honest with you. Someone in your faith, someone in your body of believers, someone in your community of faith, may wander off. And I want you to know it could happen to any of you. Paul says it in Corinthians, be very careful of your stand, lest you too could what? Fall away. He says it in Philippians, be very careful of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. There's not a one of us that aren't subject to the possibility of drifting away. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. The Bible refers to us as sheep. All of us have 
like sheep have gone astray, which is why we need a Savior in the first place and a shepherd now. Because any single one of us could have the tendency to drift away or to fall away or to walk away at some point or the other. A number of months ago, I said to you that I would view the relationship of spiritual gifts to the body of Christ now differently than Charles Swindoll, one of my favorite radio speakers. He doesn't believe that all the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit spoken of in the New Testament are evident in the church today. I would disagree with him. He's never called me on it. I've never. But we would disagree on that subject. I believe that every single one of the gifts available to us in the Spirit of God, or from the Spirit of God and in the Word of God are available to the church today. In this case, I would disagree with Charles Stanley's view on eternal security. Charles Stanley's view would basically on eternal security was once saved, always saved. Once you're in, you'll never walk away. If you walked away, you were never in to begin with. I would disagree with that. Paul and Peter, I think, spent a lot of times, and obviously did James, talking about the possibility of walking away or drifting away or falling away if it was impossible to do. Parable of the Sower, one of the most famous in the, Old Te- in the New Testament. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Word of God today and next Sunday, so you've got to have your Bibles with you. It's one of the most well-known, one of the ones that are quoted in all the Gospels or three of the Gospels. He talks about the sower sowing field, seed in the field. He said he scattered it everywhere. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some of the seed fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they didn't have any root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked out the plants so they didn't bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop. Sometimes 30, some 60, and some 100 times. When Jesus, decided, when Jesus begins to explain the meaning of that to his disciples, he said, I want you to know that the seed is the word of God. And when it's sown out on any given Sunday morning, Jesus was sowing it on a regular basis to hundreds or thousands of people who were following him. He was very honest about whether the seed took root or not. You've all been in situations or circumstances where you've, you've known that in some cases the seed really took root. And it was there. Some of you may have been in one of those environments where for the first time in your life you heard the word of God and it took root. You were knowing and you were hearing the word of God maybe for the first time or the fifth time but all of a sudden you knew that's for me. Then somewhere along the way something happened and it didn't stay. When Jesus begins to explain it, he said, I just want you to know the seed is the word of God. Some hear it and And almost immediately, Satan comes along and they return to their old way of life. Sometimes it lands on rocky soil. They receive it with joy. They realize and recognize that's the word of God. That could change my life. But for some reason or the other, it doesn't take root. And things come along and choke it out. And the thorny soil has the same thing happen to it. And other things get in the way. You really want to follow Jesus. You know it's the truth. You know that's the direction you want to go. You may even get excited about it. But a lot of other things, he tells us in Mark, come along and kind of choke it out. Sometimes the seed lands, it takes root, and it produces. And that's how you know, and James would agree with that. I often wonder how many of Jesus' parables he heard before he was converted to the faith. But I've got to believe that he has that in mind when he recognized that Probably somewhere along the way, for whatever reason, those who were a part of the family of God drifted away. 
If you remember from the very beginning when we started this series, James is writing to people in incredibly difficult circumstances. It was spread all over Central Asia at that particular time, all over the Middle East. They're going through persecution, and James says, uh, my fear is some are going to drift away. Jesus said the exact same thing in a parable. Not everyone who raised their hand or signed a card is still following Christ today. That's the thing that sometimes frustrates those of us who are in ministry and others of you, I'm sure, when you know that someone signed a card or raised their hand, but there was no follow-up, they never got any help to grow in their spiritual life. Billy Graham, who we listen to every Sunday morning on our way in, says one of the most frustrating things about their crusades is that there are hundreds of people who raise a hand, sign a card, come front, pray, and never follow through on their commitment to Christ. And sadly, many of them may think they're in because they raised their hand or signed a card. But James says, I want to be really honest with you, Jesus would have as well. Those who really have understood it and grasped it and allowed it to sink in, produce. You notice it. James would say, I'm just telling you as honest as I know how. If indeed you say you're a believer, it will be evident. Others will notice it. Jesus said not everyone who hears the truth follows it, but many have received it, some even with joy. Somewhere along the way, it didn't take root, and they walked away. James here in this section of Scripture identifies two ways. There may be others, but in this context here, James identifies two ways whereby we may drift from the truth. Verse 19, from the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, Paul predicts it when he said, A time's going to come when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, in order to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. One way to walk away is to walk away from the truth. The second way, James points out, is to stray from our way, our way of life or our, our way of behavior. That pattern that, was, that we were following at one point, in love with God, in love with His Word, in love with the people of God, spending time in fellowship with one another, for whatever reason, somewhere along the way we drifted. Jesus talks about that in Revelation. Remember when he talks to the church at Ephesus? You were in love with me, you were head over heels in love with me. Somewhere along the way, you walked away from your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Turn around, go back to what you once had. If you don't, you'll pay, pay an enormous price. There are a number of people that can walk away from the truth. There are a number of ways that James would say that we can walk away or change our way of behavior. But he said it is possible. Just want you to know, which is why it's so incredibly important to stay grounded, stay relationally grounded, scripturally grounded, biblically, biblically grounded in the truth. You'll notice in this section of Scripture what it doesn't mention about those who drift. It doesn't mention those who drift and go away to another church. One of the things that I want to be really honest about when i putting together this section of Scripture, and this may be hard for some of you to believe, but people actually have left our church. I know you're shocked. But people have. And they go to another church. And one of the things that, that I have not done and usually don't do, 
is go after them when they're in another church. Now, some would disagree with that, and we have certainly been critiqued or criticized for that. What he says here is you go after those who have drifted away from the truth or have drifted away from their way of behavior. If for whatever reason you feel like there's another church that, that has, can meet your needs, and I know I'm talking to the choir because you're here, <laughs> but throughout the years others have found another church they either connect with or they feel more comfortable in, and they become a part of that. And I feel uncomfortable at times going after them when I know they're in another Bible-believing church. Now, again, many have disagreed with that. In membership class, one of the things we talk about in the very last class is your expectations. What are your expectations of us? And I'll tell you whether or not we can meet them. And so we list them, and they list them, and they tell me all the things they expect from us, and then we'll ask, or, or I'll tell them whether or not we'd meet those expectations. And one of the things we honestly talk about is the difficulty of being a part of a large church is that you could be gone for a period of time or a long period of time and people may not know that. And sadly, they may not even notice. So I would rather you know that up front than be angry in the middle of your relationship with us as a family of God. Now, when they have left or when they're not attending and we don't follow them or don't follow up on them, they may have forgotten what we said in that class. But one of the things I want to be really honest with about the struggle of a large church, I love a large church. I love all the options, all the opportunities, all the things that we offer. I love being a part of it. I wouldn't be here if I didn't for almost 16 years. But for some, you ought to know that up front, and that's why we shared that with them. One of the downsides of being a part of a large church is that you may not be here for a long period of time, and no one may recognize that especially in multiple services. A little bit easier now with two, but incredibly difficult when we had three. I just want to be honest about that because we hear about it through the grapevine, but it's very seldom ever addressed from the pulpit. I hope you stay here till Jesus comes back. And I hope you stay forever. But when someone leaves and goes to another Bible-believing church and they're hearing the truth, there are great ones in town, I think we're one of the best. Obviously, I'm here. I believe that. But there's some great churches, and, and many have chosen for whatever reason through the years to leave, and, and I don't follow that up. Now, the other sad part is that some leave just to see if anybody misses them. And I sometimes wonder if that's your reason for coming. Maybe you've missed something in the beginning. What James says here is, I really want you to recognize those who stray from the truth. I really want you to go after those who are walking away from their way of life, from what they knew was true, what they knew was godly, what they knew that they ought to live. I really want you to go after those with every fiber of your being. What you'll also notice in this text is that it seems to be written not to those who stray, but to those who are trying to rescue those who are straying. And that's not an easy thing to do. If you've ever been in a situation where you know someone is straying from the truth, you know they're not living the lifestyle they need to, you know you've been there, you were a part of their life at one point or the other, when they made a commitment to Christ, they embraced Jesus as Savior, and now they're doing things and, and following ways that aren't pleasing to God. And, and you want to confront them with the truth, and you don't know how, because most will say it's not your business, I, I don't want to hear it, 
And many of you, if you've ever tried that, have been there at one time or the other. But I do want you to know, and we'll continue in this journey next Sunday as well, I do want you to know these two verses had the heart of God in mind as much as any section of Scripture about going after those who are lost. After trying to bring, for trying to bring those home who have walked away from the faith. Matthew 18, one of the most familiar sections of Scripture that talk about people who are walking away from the faith, has the same context in mind in your sermon notes. If your brother or sister sins, go and point it out to them, but do it just between the two of you. Don't talk about it with anybody else. Hey, did you know that they're not coming to church anymore? Did you know that I saw them here? Or did you know that I saw them there? Did you know that they're not as consistent as they used to be? James said, don't do that. Jesus said in Matthew, don't do that. If you know a brother is walking away or is not living the lifestyle that he once embraced, confront him, talk to him, share with him. But go to him one-on-one. If he doesn't follow that, if he doesn't believe it or doesn't see it or recognize it, take someone else with you. The witness of two people will help them understand, hey, maybe it is me. Maybe I, I really have drifted away. Bring another fellow with you. Bring another friend with you. If they refuse to listen, tell everybody so that they can be praying for them. They refuse to listen even to that, treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. One of the interesting things is we use this section of Scripture for excommunication. In other words, a, a way to send people out who are living an ungodly lifestyle so that they're no longer a part of our fellowship. But he said, treat him like a tax collector or a pagan, and who do you want to invite to church? Those who aren't following God. So I don't think it's really meant to be exclusive, to shut them out and never open the doors to them again. It's just an opportunity to remind them of their behavior. Jesus said, I just want you to know, where two or three are gathered doing that in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We've used verse 20 a number of times, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst uh, at small prayer meetings, just to be reminded of the fact that as long as the two of us are here, God's here, and that's true. But to be really honest with you, you don't need two or three. If one of you show up and you know Jesus, he's there. These verses in Matthew 18 are all about reconciliation, all about restoration. We think it's all about excommunication. And Jesus' heart, James' heart, Paul's heart is always to bring the family home. Always to bring those who are straying to where they need to be. James has the exact same thing in mind in these two verses. These verses may seem somewhat of an odd conclusion, but they're really not. Because James has been doing exactly this all along. From chapter 1 to the very end, he's been calling people to a higher level of living. People who are facing enormous challenges who could have a tendency to drift away from the truth. He's wanting them more than anything else to stay consistent, to stay the course, to stay with the faith. Chapter 1. None of you should say God is tempting me when you walk away. Quit blaming God when you're drifting. You just need to recognize that you've allowed yourself to be in a situation where that evil desire has stayed and lasted And sadly, it gives birth to sin. And when that sin is full grown, it's going to give birth to death. Do not be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. In chapter 1, James knew something about blame and the lack of responsibility. And from that point on, he was trying to call people back to the truth. Quit blaming other people for your drifting. Quit blaming other people for the fact that you've walked away. 
In chapter 2, he's calling us to live out our faith, not just with words. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you claim to have faith but no deeds? You have a brother or sister who's in need, and you say to them, be warm and be filled, go in peace, I'll pray for you, and you do nothing about it? I've got to believe that if your faith is really what you say it is, it'll be evident how you treat that individual. He's not just saying here at the end, hey, rescue those who seem to have drifted. He's been calling us from the very beginning to make sure we recognize it's so easy to fall away. It's so easy to drift away. It's so easy to say words, raise our hands, sign a card, and not live it out. James says, look, I'm calling you back to the truth. Live it. And chapter 3 warned us about the power of influence. Not many of you should become teachers because you need to know those who teach will be judged more strictly. So don't take it lightly. Don't take it casually. You've been called to a place of influence. Live it well and lead well. Chapter 3, verse 6, he said, hey, I want you to know, some of you are killing people with your tongue. Some of you are hurting, you're destroying people with words. Proverbs has, says the tongue has the power to give life or to bring death. James says in chapter 3, look, I need you to know, your tongue is really hurting people. It's destroying people. Don't do that. In chapter 4, he warns us about our partnership with the world. I just need you to know that you're drifting back. You look more like the world than the world does, or at least as much like the world as the world does. Paul said, come out from among them and be separate. Live a lifestyle that others notice, and I just want you to know you're drifting backwards. I have a hard time telling. 2,000 years after it was written, George Barna takes a survey of the North American church and finds out there's very little difference in the behavior of believers and non-believers. And James would walk in and say, hey, I want you to know, you're drifting. Commitment you had, the passion you had, the fire you had, the zeal you had, the things you wouldn't do, the places you wouldn't go, the things you wouldn't watch, the things you wouldn't read, I can't tell any difference now. You're drifting. What you once had, what you once were, what you once did, what you once said, how you once talked, it looks a lot different now. I want to be really honest. You're drifting. He's been saying that for chapters. End of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, he tried to make sure that we were spending our life resources on the right things. Listen, those of you who say tomorrow we'll do this, tomorrow we'll do that, go make money, do our thing, I just want you to know that life's real short. Real brief. Don't take it for granted. Which is much to say you've taken life for granted. You're drifting away. You once recognized how precious life was. You once recognized what a gift life was. And now you seem to be taking it for granted as if you think you have all your life and it's all about raising or it's all about making money and earning a living. And I'm not living. I'm not loving. You're drifting. And so now he says here, if any of you see anybody doing that, man, pull them back. And for five chapters, he's been saying the same thing in different ways. In this context here and for the first five chapters or the first four and a half chapters up until this very end, he's pretty much talking to those who are listening. He's been trying to pull them back, trying to, to get them to come in, trying to stay close. And now he talks to those who recognize others are drifting and say, look, one of the greatest things you can do, one of the best things you can do is to pull them back. Don't let them go. Don't let them drift. Don't let them fall away. The ministry of bringing people home isn't easy, but to be really honest with you, 
it really honestly shows and displays the heart of God. As Jesus said even about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To do that, we're going to talk about it next Sunday morning, it's going to require an enormous amount of wisdom because what you'll have to do is to know when to look, when to search, when to let them go, when to let them fall, when to pick them up, and when to put them out. And next Sunday morning, we'll talk about how to discern the difference between those. Probably not a a better way to end this piece, when we talk about the practical size next Sunday, than with communion. Every time we share communion, I always want to give you an opportunity to think about some specific things that communion provides for us. Provides for us enormous visual of what grace really looks like. It provides for us an unbelievable visual example of the heart of God. It shows us how much He loves us. It shows us how much He cares. And every time I hold the bread and hold the cup in my hands, I recognize God loved me this much that He was willing to pay this price to come and rescue me and redeem me and call me home. Because the heart of God is always about calling people to Himself. And communion reminds us of that. So this morning, if you're here and and, and you recognize what Jesus has done and how he's rescued you and redeemed you and, and, and brought you home when you were drifting, when you were far away from God, doing your own thing, running your own life. And now you have the opportunity to hold these two things in your hand. I just want you to celebrate the fact that God loved you so much that he gave his life so that you could have life and he brought you to himself. For one or two of you in the room this morning or a dozen of you in the room this morning, who has a relative or a friend or a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter who has drifted away from the truth, I'd love for you to pray for them during that time. Because I've got to believe there's a lot of us in the room here this morning who have drifted away and have friends who have drifted away. And we're back, but they're not. And your heart breaks. And it's just a great time to pour that out to God. And then there may be one this morning who is here and is drifting, but you're here. Do you have any idea how timely it is that you are? And I just want you to say from the heart of God, he wants you back. He wants you home. He wants you with himself. And it'd be the best day in your life. As you share communion this morning, if you know Christ is your Savior, to reconnect and to recommit and to come back. Father, as we share these elements this morning and we're reminded of your amazing love, we hold that bread and we hold that cup and are reminded how much you loved us. Even while we were yet sinners, you came and died for us. When we were drifting and walking away, you rescued us and you redeemed us and you died on the cross to set us free. And a lot of us, maybe all of us are here, are here this morning and We were one of those and we're just thrilled to be in this place this morning and hold these two elements in our hands and be reminded of how much he loved us. For those of us in this room this morning who know someone who is drifting, listen to our hearts as we pray for them. And for that one who is drifting, who's here today, bring them back.
Communion stores are going to come right now. And take the elements and serve with no other instructions. Justin's going to lead us in some singing. Take the bread, take the tray, have it served to your neighbor beside you so that they can then take the elements out, take the bread and the cup both at the same time. Hold them until everyone is served and then we'll lead at the end together and partake of these two things and spend some just wonderful time with Jesus during this time together. As soon as you get a tray, gentlemen, start serving.
You hold your hands symbols of God's amazing grace, His love for you, and His love for me. Share them together, the bread first, and then the cup. Father, thank you again for your amazing grace, for rescuing us and redeeming us. No greater love has anyone than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Thank you for calling us home, for all of us in this room this morning who are walking with you consistently and lovingly. But again, we lift up those this morning that you have heard us cry out to you. Who are Bring them home. Give us the courage to find them, to go after them, to do whatever's necessary so that they too can have what we have found and what we have now in Jesus. Remind them of your love and bring them back. Thank you for the privilege of being able to celebrate this gift this morning of life and love in Jesus' name.